0: Good morning, it's nice to meet you. As Dave mentioned, my name is Jennifer and you may remember me from being baptized last Sunday. <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs> Thank you. So, this morning, we are going to do things just a little bit differently than we normally do. So, we'll be reading the passage together before the sermon begins. So, if you could please grab a copy of your scriptures, whether it's your own Bible or a Bible under your seat or your phone, please do so. And when you have, please stand and turn to Psalm 139. Okay, let's begin. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them how precious to me are your thoughts O god how vast is the sum of them if i would count them they are more than the sand i awake and i am still with you And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You can be seated now.
1: Well, good morning. Um, It's great that you are here with us today, and... um... Welcome to our our Summer in the Psalms. Thanks for joining us. If you're new with us, it's great to see so many new faces out there. Uh, A special welcome to you. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is a great time to to start uh, tracking with us here at Sedaris, because we're diving into a new sermon series here at Sedaris. Uh, This this week, like Dave had mentioned, we spend the summers in the Psalms, and this is the first week that we're doing so. And um, the Psalms actually present us with the church, uh, us, the church, with a very um, unique and even helpful next step for us. If you've been tracking with uh, Sedaris for a while, you'll know that we have been working through the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus. We started it at the beginning of the year, and we got all the way to the end of it. We spent about six and a half months in this book, and it's a, it's a really great book. You know, it has all these, these huge uh, like events that, you know, you hear about growing up in the church. You have the, the 10 plagues in Israel coming out of Egypt, and then the giving of the law, and then the tabernacle. And Exodus chapter 40, the very end of it, kind of concludes with one of these huge high events, and that's God's presence coming down to fill the tabernacle after the Israelites had completed it. The back half of the book of Exodus is really all about the Israelites entering into a covenant with God and completing the tabernacle so that he can dwell with them, he can dwell next to them on earth. And and so God is eagerly awaiting this to happen, and once it happened, he, he rushes down and he fills the tabernacle His glory has finally arrived on earth, which is exactly what he was hoping to do through his people of Israel. And and, and we kept saying that if you can understand Exodus, when you understand Exodus, you can really understand what it means to be a Christian because God does the very same thing with us today. He he reveals himself to us. He miraculously frees us from the slavery and and bondage of sin. And, 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 And he enters into a new covenant with us and he sends us his presence. So he's dwelt kind of next to the Israelites in the tabernacle, and then when Jesus shows up, the Apostle John says, Jesus tabernacled among us, he dwelt among us. And then when Jesus left, now he sends the Holy Spirit to tabernacle or dwell within us as well. And and it's very, very amazing, isn't it? This is supposed to be one of the great truths of the Christian faith. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you will know this— that while the truth of God's indwelling presence, um, it may be incredible and amazing on paper, it's a hard reality to lean into and experience. It's quite a, a, a different thing when you try to go ahead and take steps into it yourself, when you try to lean into it yourself. And, and it, we, we don't need to be too hard on ourselves, because it's actually been a difficult reality for Christians since the very beginning. Paul, in writing a letter to one of the churches in the first century, uh, the the Corinthian church, he he says this to them. He says, do you not know that you, your your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? You see, throughout all of Christian history, what we have is this tendency for us as Christians to actually forget this incredible groundbreaking reality that the all-powerful creator of the universe apparently is inside of us. We forget it, and we get off base from it, <laughs> and and at times we think, you know, that's not even all that helpful, and at other times, perhaps not even all that existent. Is it even true? And um, especially now more than ever, if you're anything like me, if you're anything like Pastor Dave, um, you expected to pray a lot more in COVID than you actually did, am I right? Am I right? Like, this has been a really rough year and a half. I think that after a, a a year and a half of pandemic, of social unrest, uh, the resulting uh, so, uh, like social anxieties of isolation, division, uh, that have really drove stakes between uh, us and our friends, us and God even perhaps for, for many of us. We're coming into this summer after hearing a sermon on the, the presence of God in Exodus chapter 40, and, and we're kind of like, where are you, God? Where, are, where have you been? Where are you? And so as we dive into the Psalms this summer, we've actually chosen to highlight six Psalms that are gonna point us to life in God, point us towards actually how do we lean into this presence of God that the scriptures tells us every Christian has within them. How do we actually do it? You know, so while we may proclaim it um, as we read Exodus chapter 40, let's get down to the nuts and bolts and, and start asking the question and examining, well, how does this actually work? How can I tap into this life that God has for me. And the Psalms, are the, they're, they're the place to do it. Um, Psalm chapter one really functions as an introduction to all of the Psalms, and it goes like this. I'll throw it up here for you. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree, planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he or she does prospers, prospers. And so do you see that? Leaning into the presence of God means to start with his revealed word is what the Psalms tell us. And and that in turn plants you by this stream, by this stream and and you're, you're a tree and that stream is gonna be the access to God. It's gonna be access to life of God that leads to fruitfulness, flourishing, and joy. And so we're gonna lean into the Psalms this summer in the hopes that we can tap into that stream. So you can come to church and even just think of it as I'm gonna go to the stream at church here and we're gonna talk about how we can put our buckets down in this stream together and tap into the life of God. That's what we're gonna be doing for the next six weeks. Because over the book of Psalms, we see people over and over who have done just that. The Psalms are written by a couple handfuls of different people. David wrote about half of them, but they have done just that. We see people who've come into drought, come into hardship. They've come into difficulty, scarcity, but they chose relationship with God. They chose the presence of God. They chose to send roots down. And when they did that, even though they had good days and bad days, when they committed to doing that over the course of a season, what we'll see is that they started to find water and they started living fruitful, joyful lives. And so we're we're just gonna lean in to we're gonna lean into their stories with them over these next few weeks. And, and we're starting with Psalm 139 that Jennifer read for us. Why? Well, because Psalm. 139, it represents an honest wrestling with the very presence of God, with the topic of the presence of God. And, and, and I say an honest wrestling because King David, he's the one who's writing the psalm. He's clearly wrestled with this notion of the presence of God. He's struggled with it. It's, it's not all butterflies and rainbows for him. And when we look into at his wrestle, we look at his struggle, we discover, oh, this shouldn't be so easy for us to stomach either. In fact, if if, if God's presence is is a simple thing in your mind, it probably means you haven't fully wrestled with what it actually is and what it actually means in life. So... um, we're going to walk through David's journey here in Psalm 139. The Psalms often represent a journey, and we're just getting the finished product at the end. So David went through his journey of wrestling with the, the presence of God. We're going to see that journey, and then he, he penned this, this beautiful poem, so it's in poetic prose, and it was put to song. And we're going to wrestle with it, and what we're going to see is that David really concludes, and he's, he's going to try to help us see that, that God's presence, it's an inescapable reality an inescapable reality. And then he's going he's to show us how that inescapable reality is actually a perceived threat. It's a perceived threat to the human heart, but if you stick with it, it can be a transforming joy. Okay, so, so that's kind of his process. I'm just going to give you his journey up front. And we're just going to go through each step. And as we, we go through this, even think in your own mind and reflect on your own life. How have I experienced this before? Because it's likely that you have had the same experience that David had here 3,300 years ago. Oh, 3,000 years ago now. He was about 1,000 years before Jesus. 3,000 years ago. All right, so to begin with, God's presence is an inescapable reality. Uh, perhaps you picked up on this as, as Jennifer was, was reading it. This is his big conclusion. He brings up all these polarities to try to show us that, that God's presence is everywhere, and you can't get away from it. So, so first in verses 1 through 6, uh, David argues that God, he knows everything. This is the, the, it's the language of polarity there. he's Even when I sit down and when I, and when I rise up, you've known me and you've searched me, you you see me when I sit down, when I rise up, uh, you see that God, you see everything that's going on outside of me, everything I do, everything I say, everything everywhere I go, you see that God. But then more, then he follows it up with something even a little bit more intense. He says, God, you discern my thoughts from afar. So God even sees what's going on inside of David. So David's saying, God, God, you know everything outside of me, everything inside of me. But there's something even more crazy, I guess, or intense than that. He says that God knows everywhere he's been, um, everywhere he's been, and even what he's going to say before he says it, but then God knows everything on the, on, about his past and about his future, his past and his future. He's, he's saying that God's knowledge completely surrounds him he says, You're acquainted with all of my ways. You're acquainted with all of my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Oh, Lord, you know it completely. God knows his future, is what he's saying. Now, this is pretty intense. He says, You've seen everywhere I've been, you've seen everywhere I'm going. And, and, and this is a really difficult thing that we've tried to grasp for centuries, millennia, as, as human beings to understand this God. And, and what this means is that God is not like us. He's not chained to a single moment in time like you or, or I are. Like, like if you were to think of a hike, you, you kind of think of getting preparing for a hike, putting everything in your bag, driving to the mountain, walking up the mountain, that mountaintop experience where you see everything, the, the beautiful view, and then hiking back down where your knees just kill, you know? You experience each one of those moments as they are present to you. But God's not like that. He's not like that at all. He sees all of it at the same time. It's unfathomable, really. But if you really roll up your sleeves and examine the relationship between God and time in the Scriptures, you'll find that all moments are present to God. All moments are present to God. He's not chained to a single moment. He's not chained to a sequence of them. He chose in the person of Jesus Christ to step into time and be chained to in that way, but not fully. And this is what it really means. So that, that, that's all great philosophical meanderings, but this is what it really means. And this is what David's saying God knows you best. He's the only person who really knows who you really, really are. He knows you better than you know yourself. Why? Because he actively sees your past, your present, and your future. While you and me, we are just, we're, we're slaves to the present moment. The, some of us are really good at recalling the past, but not even all of, all of it, nor close to all of it. But God sees all of it. He knows you infinitely more than you even know yourself. He, know, he sees you completely all stages of your life. So so, so David's saying we're surrounded by God's knowledge inside us, outside us, past, present, future. God sees it all. God sees it all. And and in the next stanza, David really talks about how we're surrounded by God's presence. So we're surrounded by his knowledge, now we're surrounded by his presence. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there, Sheol, to the Hebrews, was the, the afterlife. This is the place where their soul went and, and, and waited. Uh, it was conceived of as below the earth, but it wasn't hell. It wasn't really purgatory either. They're not, like, getting punished for anything there. They're really just waiting for the resurrection to come so they can be reunited with their body. Again, so, so the heights and the depths, we've got polarity again. And, and then in the next verse, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, um, this is worded a little bit confusing, but the word, the wings of the morning, David's talking about dawn, sun rising in the east, and the uttermost parts of the sea, Israel was on the Mediterranean Sea, and so the uttermost parts of the sea was as far west as they could conceive of, so God has, God's presence is from east to west. He's, he's everywhere, the up, down, left, right, God is everywhere, his spirit's everywhere, his presence is everywhere, and what's really interesting here is that word for presence it's a really interesting Hebrew word. It's, it's the Hebrew word pani, and it actually means face, face. David's asking in, in verse seven, where, where can I hide? Where can I flee and get away from your face, God? Where can I, I, Everywhere I go, your face is there. You see, God isn't kind of diluted over all space, is, is what David is saying. He's not like, like you open a, a container with gas in it and God disperses everywhere, no, he's saying everywhere you go, God is fully and potently there. He's not diluted across space. He, he's everywhere. His spirit and his face surround us. And then, in, in this third stanza here, um, David will say we're also surrounded by his power, by his power. And and to do this, he really points at how God has created our bodies and created our souls. Kind of the language of polarity again. For you formed me in my inward parts; you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Skip down to verse sixteen. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, soul. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So that verse sixteen is a little bit confusing, the phrasing there. But but do you know what it's saying? David's saying God not only um, has created him and, and holds him together and sustains him, but that God also wrote down all the days of his life to live, even before he lived a single one of them. So God creates and ordained your being, and then he also creates and ordains your history, David says. All of it, from the womb at one end to all the days of my life, that is, to death on the other end. Every day is ordained. It's it's all planned. It all has reason. It all has purpose. From conception to last breath, God is in charge. He created you, David says. He ordained you. He sustains you. He upholds you. His power overshadows absolutely every second of your life. He's present at every time and every place in your day. That's what David's saying here. He's, He's saying nothing short of that. And that is overwhelming. Are you feeling it? Is God everywhere? Is he oppressive? Isn't it overwhelming? And if you're feeling like that's way too much, that's exactly what David wants you to feel. If you think that David's overstating God's, God's knowledge, his presence, his power, he says, that's exactly how I felt too. Because like, like Sidney prayed, David isn't just a, a theologian giving us facts, he's a poet. He's telling us how his heart responds to those facts. Because when you fully realize that the presence of God is unescapable, inescapable, it's everywhere, there's no running away from it, there's no fleeing it, your human heart perceives it as an overwhelming threat. You see see here in the psalm, David is running us through this journey, like I said, um, because many of the psalms recount this journey, and, and he's wrestling, and he's overwhelmed. Where do we see that? It's in verse six. Verse six, it says, such knowledge is too wonderful to me, that's in poetic prose, and so you, you, we can kind of think, you know what, perhaps he's just kind of making a humble statement here, like, oh, this is all just beyond me, God. I, 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 it's just too wonderful for me, you know? But no, what he's actually saying, uh, this is a Hebrew idiom. He's saying, this is way beyond me. I don't get it. This is too fantastical to grasp. I'm, I'm, I'm reeling, God. I can't handle this. And the reason why is back up in Verse 5. This is a really interesting phrase called, you hem me in. You hem me in. What is he talking about there? Well, The best picture I can think of is if you were to get in a sleeping bag and David were to, or, or someone were to stitch the zipper shut. He feels trapped. He feels like he's being smothered. God's just weighing in. He says, your hand is upon me. You're suffocating me, God. I can't breathe underneath it. David feels smothered by the presence of God. And so if you're beginning to feel a little bit like that, as we talked about God's expansiveness, how he's everywhere, he knows your future, he knows you, everything about you, he knows what, what you're doing, what you're going to do, that's exactly what David's experience was too. He felt the exact same way. And where did he go next? Well, look at verse seven. He says, where shall I go? Or where shall I flee from your presence? He wants to run away. He wants to run away. He wants to get, I feel smothered, I, got, I feel claustrophobic, I gotta get out of here. I have to get out of here. And this is just out and out rebellion. This is really what, this is David wanting to get away from God. He says, I have to get away from God's face. I have to flee his presence, flee his face. If you read the book of Jonah, what, what you find in the first three verses is this same phrase. When God asked Jonah to go preach uh, 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 and called the Ninevites to repentance. But Jonah just hated these Ninevites. He's like, you know what? Probably for good reason. They did really egregious acts to like really vulnerable people, these this people group did. And so Jonah's like, I don't want to give them the chance to respond to the grace of God. I hate them. And so he fled from the presence of God and he got on a ship to the uttermost parts of the sea. The furthest part he could away from God, to Tarshish, which we think is modern-day Spain. Run away flee from God's face. I gotta get out of here. Now, when we take into account just the general notions of antiquity, this is actually even crazier. It's even more of a surprising move, because you see, ancient people, they're not like you and me. They actually didn't expect to live their lives how they wanted to. It's a very modern notion very modern notion. They, they knew and accepted that they were going to live lives, live their lives the way their families, the way their tribes, the, the way their nation states were going to say they were going to live their lives. They, they had an, uh, an infinitely greater sense of duty than, than you or I do. We, we can't even comprehend it. Uh, perhaps some of you from, from other countries, particularly in, in the East, can, can come to the United States and say, I have way more allegiance to my family than, than you guys do here. This is crazy. You know, so they're, they're, we have a little bit of, of a taste in it from people who come into Western culture. But, but, but even then, it's, it's far pales into comparison to what ancient people had in mind with regards to duty and living their life how they wanted to live it. They would have been like, what? Live life how I want to live it? Uh, And if David can't stand it as an ancient person, the top of the totem pole, how can we stand it? What about us? You see, us living in the West, we have an incredibly good idea. We had an incredibly good idea. Perhaps it's even a huge blessing called individual self-determination. We have the opportunity and we have the right to choose for ourselves how to live life. And we've taken this very good idea and this blessing and we've made, uh, we, we, we've made a God out of it. We, we've turned it into an ultimate spiritual reality and perhaps the very meaning of life. That, that's what we've done with it. You, you know, we, we, we feel like I have to be me. I have to live life my way. I have to live as I decide is right or wrong. And if I don't have the freedom to do that, then my life is meaningless. I don't have any purpose in my life if I can't make it for myself. That's, that's how we are. That's how we are. That, that, that's how our culture tells us to live. And if, if that is your understanding of life, and it is our understanding of life, this, this omni-God, this, this all-powerful, this all-knowing, this all-present being, he's a nightmare. He's a nightmare. I remember coming into contact with just this notion of the presence of God and just this, this allegiance and duty that I had to come a lot, that, like in, in college, and I was like, oh, man this is going to be rough. This is going to be rough. He really calls all the shots? You see, just God's presence destroys that idea of freedom. If there's a God like this, we can't be fully free like our Western culture tells tells us we we can be. If there's a God who sees everything, who's ordained everything, this radical freedom, it cannot exist. Now, no, we're not talking about free will here, so, so, don't, so don't lose me there. God's all-encompassing nature, it, it doesn't remove our free will or the choices we make. He still clearly holds us responsible for the choices we make in life. We're talking about independence, the freedom of independence. If there's a God who completely surrounds us, we can't live life without taking into regard how he wants us to live in each and every part of it. And that's why David, Jonah, So many of us want to escape this all-present God. We don't even want him to exist. If if the meaning of life is to live any way you want, then if there's a God like this, it sure is hard to get on board with him. It's really hard. You, and so so how do we get away? How do we get away? Either we think that he doesn't exist, or there's another alternative. We we turn him into something else, far more palatable. We morph him into a God that, that supports our, our broken and our fallen desires and, and longing. We turn him into a God of self-esteem. We envision a God who exists to make us feel better instead of a God who hopes to get us on the right track, changing into something more palatable. So remember, this is David's journey that he's bringing us into here. Um, God blew his mind with this understanding of presence. He feels claustrophobic. He feels smothered. He really wants to get away what's next? Well, he actually comes out the other side. He came out the other side. And, and verse 7 uh, really represents David's, he's giving up. He's giving up trying to run. He, he's giving up. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? There's like an ambivalence here. The, 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 the subtext is, I tried and I can't. I tried to get away and I can't. Jonah tried He couldn't, David tried, he couldn't. You and I experience this when we run from God. To run from God is impossible and it eventually leads to misery. You end up inside a fish if you're trying. And often this is young professionals here in Seattle. It's it's this misery of running from God that eventually causes them to turn and say, you know what, God, I'll give you a shot. I'll give you a shot. That's so many people's stories in, in, in this room alone. And and, and so David really reflects this change of tone that he goes through in his journey. And it really changes in verse nine. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. It's not that oppressive. And your right hand shall hold me. Do you see how the function of God's hand has changed? Up in verse five, it was heavy upon him, smothering him. Now the hand is leading him and guiding him. God's presence, he's leaned into it and he's discovered the benefits of God's presence. A hand that guides so you don't get lost, a hand that holds you so you don't fall down. Now, if if we were to be fully free, we have to realize there's no hand. There's no guidance, there's no moral guidance, there's no protection. It's a vulnerable and a miserable state to be in. And, And so this tone change here with this change, David's really inviting us into that transforming joy of God's presence because there's God leading us, guiding us, holding us. And the joy sh- uh, really starts to, to come forth in verse 11. It says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Darkness in Hebrew poetry, it, it always uh, represents suffering, hardships, pain, sickness, death. Um, you can even throw in the, the, the darkness of our modern day uh, mental health issues of loneliness, depression, anxiety, the darkness, the, 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 the times when you're, those things that are absolutely terrible in life, the things that you're absolutely most afraid of in life. David says, you're there, God. You're, the, you're, you're holding my hand in the darkness. And if you have a God that's holding your hand in the darkness, that's great. But you know what's even better? A God who sees through the darkness, who the darkness is as light to him. That's what David is saying here. It's not just God is going to sit with you in your darkness. God actually sees perfectly, and he can lead you out and guide you out of that darkness. This is where David begins to find the joy of God's presence, because when God is present in darkness, he's our great help and deliverer. That's what David's saying. He says, you overwhelmed me. You were everywhere. When I really needed you, you were there. You were there. You were holding my hand. David's joy uh, continues. If you look down in verse 17, it says, God's thoughts are precious to him. How precious are your thoughts? Uh, precious, this is a word used for precious metals and, and rubies, so it's like, He's referring to gold and and sapphires. He's saying, the wealth in life are the thoughts of God. If you want to be a wealthy person in life, try to collect as many thoughts of God as possible and put them in your pockets you know, that's, I think it's really good for us to hear that wealth isn't something other than, than money. Am, am, am I right? You know, like all of our lives we spend trying to get enough money, set enough aside so that we can retire one day. But David here is saying, he says, I had all of that. Do you know what's actually, what, do you know what real wealth is? God's thoughts. God's thoughts will get you through life better than your 401k will. It's a pretty crazy thing to say. God's thoughts are, are precious to him precious. Now, verse 18, um, the, the, the commentators, those are, those are the people who, like, know the language a hundred times better than I do or Dave does, and they, like, they just nerd out on Hebrew all the time. Uh, they read through um, Psalm 139, and they point to verse 18, and they say, yep, that's the climax of the psalm. Like, this is what David wants you to see more than anything, verse 18. If I could, if I would count them, that's God's thoughts, they're more than the sand and then they say the climax is here. I awake, and I am still with you. Now that's a strange uh, climax for this psalm, because David has given us a list of things that God's already done at the very beginning of the psalm, and and, um, he says, God's present with me when I rise up. That's all the way up there in verse two. Why would this, just saying that again, be the climax of this psalm? Well, David actually writes another psalm, Psalm 17, and it, it goes like this. Psalm 17, verse 15. This is the the very last verse of it. David says, as for me, I shall behold your face. He's talking to God. Behold your face and righteousness. Your, Your presence, your face and righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And from the context, he's talking about death. He's talking about death. And that's what David has in mind here at the end. In of verse 18, he has moved so far away from being threatened by God's presence. He, he's saying, I have a God who's so impossible to lose, who's always with me no matter where I go, who's always present, he's always there, he's always got me by the hand, going down the road and going here, going there, in this darkness and in that darkness, that when I die, I know that he's even gonna be there holding my hand. That he's gonna hold my hand through the darkest moment that'll ever come for me that'll ever come for you, that's eventually coming for all of us. This all-present God is, is hard to stomach, but it's ultimately good, David says, because it means he's going to be with us through death, the most terrifying moment we'll ever experience. And we're a young church, so the presence of death is not in, in front of our face all the time, but COVID brought it into some of our existences, and it's a terrifying moment when that person is on the edge but God is gonna walk through him with it. That's David's hope. He says, in my resurrected body, I'm gonna see him again. That's his hope. It's not just wishful th- thinking. It's a certainty that he's gained from wrestling with the presence of God, wrestling with the face of God. This is a certainty that David has gathered. In, in, in Mark chapter five, uh, he recounts uh, a day in the life of Jesus. And um, at one point, a synagogue leader came up to Jesus uh, threw himself at Jesus's feet and said, oh, "Jesus, please, please help me. My, my daughter, she's on her deathbed. She's about to die. Could you come and heal her?" And Jesus says, "Yes, let's go." And, and they're walking all, along the road to go get to her daughter, uh, to, to his daughter. And um, Jesus gets sidetracked, healing more people. Okay, typical Jesus. And in this sidetrackness, it takes time, and he gets waylaid, and the girl dies. News comes to them in the street, uh, to to the synagogue leader and says, don't bother the teacher anymore for your daughter, she's died. Jesus looks at him and says, don't be afraid, just believe. And they continue on to the synagogue leader's house. They enter his house, and there she is, lying dead in her bed. And Jesus walks over to her, and, and, and Mark says, he takes her by the hand, and he says, Talitha kum. Talitha is a term of endearment that, that a parent would say to their child, and, and kum means get up. And so Jesus goes to this little girl who's lying dead in her bed, and she he says, Child, sweetie, dear, get up. And she stands up. She stands up. She opened her eyes. She stood up. What what did Jesus do there? Well, he reached into death and he pulled her out of it. You see, she was making her beds in the her bed in the depth of, of Sheol there, but but he Pulled her out of it. He sweetly woke her up. You you see, if God's got you by the hand, even darkness will turn to light. Even death will turn into resurrection. You see, we all struggle with a God who's all around us. We all feel smothered by a God who's always looking. We We all struggle with a God who's always there. We want to make our own decisions. We want to do what we want to do. We want to live and experience what we want to live and what we want to experience. Yet at the same time, we want him. We still want that hand, don't we? We want to trust him, we want the guidance, we want the support, we want the encouragement, we all want to be sweetly woken up and welcomed into everlasting life. That sweet wake up, I think Mark gave it to us, I think it's a picture of what's to come for all Christians who die and wake up in the next life. Jesus holding his hand saying, dear, it's time to get up. We all want it, but how did David get there to this confidence? (laughs) How did he go from the threat of the smothering to the assurance that this joy awaited him, huh? Like, how did he actually do it? How did he do it? And the answer, I think, is in the verses 19 to 24. Um, And with some transparency, uh, I first felt like leaving these verses out. (laughs) They're intense. As as Jennifer read them, you might have been like, oh, my goodness, we're going to be talking about that today? they're, They're really intense, but I think that there's, there's some keys here in this back part of the psalm that really help us understand where David got his confidence from. After all, look at verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Doesn't this represent a complete about face for David? He's saying, God, your presence is smothering to me. Your hand is heavy upon me. I gotta get out of here. And now at the end of the psalm, what is he saying? God, come to me. Come into the deepest, most intimate, darkest parts of my heart and soul, and illuminate them for me. Like, how does he know that he's going to be okay if he does that? Because David knew Exodus better than we do. David knew that when Moses asked God, God, show me your glory, Moses, the the pinnacle of of righteousness in, in the scriptures, God looked at Moses and said, I can't, it'll completely kill you. David was there when they were transporting the ark back to Jerusalem and the ark started to tip over. Someone went to try to support it. They touched the ark and dead. Like like how does, where does this confidence come from for David that this God's presence can enter into his being and he's gonna be okay? Because you know, there's, one of the reasons we, we, we want to be away from the presence of God isn't a good reason, and it's because we want to be free. But there's another reason that we want to be away from the presence of God, and it's probably a good reason, is because it's dangerous. It's dangerous for us as humans. He's holy, and we're not. And the fact that we want to live our own lives, in spite of the fact that he created us, he ordained us, he holds us together, he has a great design for our lives, and we want to live our lives the way that we want to live them, that's Sin. We, we have no right to our lives, yet we always try to take them back from God. We always want to. And so if we're actually to get into the presence, if, if we were actually to see God's face, we couldn't survive, and David knew that. So how does he get this assurance? And and then I'd say another question is, like how how can David say these things? Like, like how, how can he says this stuff here? I mean, this is stuff that in the New Testament, the New Testament says we should never say these things. So here's David's honest wrestling. Preserved for us in Scripture, New Testament says, yeah, don't say that. (laughs) Slay the wicked? What? I hate those who hate you? Jesus says we're supposed to love our enemies. That's Matthew 5. Jesus says we're supposed to do good to those who hate you. Luke chapter 6. Pray for those who persecute us and abuse us, that's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. What happened between that and this? Like, what's going on? The <laughs> Bible says you should never talk this way. Yet we here we have the king of Israel talking this way. Well, David had a few points in his life where he understood that he was God's enemy. Very clearly. Very clearly. And, and he was awaiting a Messiah that would come vindicate him and vindicate Israel in spite of all that. Now, Now, David doesn't know exactly how that's going to be fleshed out in his life, but you do. You know what's happened. It's, it's David's great-great-great-grandson who died on the cross for his enemies. That's what happened. And that's the answer to both of these riddles, really. That's how David can have the assurance that God will love him, though he doesn't really understand why and, and, uh, and why we no longer would ever say this of our enemies because Jesus died praying for his enemies. God forgive them for they know not what they do. And Jesus died crying out Psalm 22. And, and if you read Psalm 22, do you know what it's all about? It's about distance from God. Here are the first couple of verses of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus was said on the cross. And oftentimes when you go into the, the, the writings and scriptures, when someone would say a single line of the psalm, that's just one way of saying they went through this thing. Okay? And so he read the whole psalm. Why are you so? Or he would recite the whole psalm. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. The whole psalm is about a God who's far, 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 far away. But here's David, and he can't lose the presence of God. Now, that doesn't seem fair. Jesus couldn't find the presence of God, but David couldn't lose the presence of God. See, David knew that because God had him by the hand, even the darkness would turn into light. Jesus knew that because God had left him, that day was going to turn into darkness for him. And Jesus lost the Father's hand. He was abandoned by God because he was getting what we deserved. You see, we try to get away from God like David does here. And and do you know what the penalty for that is? To get what we ask for. To get what we ask for, to be abandoned by God. But David rebelled against God, and he ran from him, but God didn't abandon him. And so he's forced to conclude that, God, you're not going to let me go. I've rebelled a lot in my life. David did some pretty hairy stuff. At the end of David's life, David's like, I'm going to build you a temple, God. And God's like, whoa, your hands are covered in way too much blood to construct anything that I would ever set foot in. God knew, or David knew because of all, all of his rebellions, yet he still had the presence of God that God would never let him go. And so Jesus took on our rebellions. He was abandoned. He lost the presence of God. (laughs) He lost that on the cross so that if you repent and you believe in him, you might never lose the presence of God like David does here. That guiding, protecting, dark to light, death to resurrection, presence of God forever. And, And so when we lean into understanding the presence of God and everything the Bible tells about it here, you know, all three of these parts as we work through it, as we work through it, all the way to transforming joy, the presence of God becomes this this edgy comfort. Comfort with an edge, you could say. Um, Because being God's presence with you will give you incredible confidence in life. But God's presence with you will also give you incredible humility because he'll do just what David asked him to do at the end of this psalm here, which is search me, know my ways, show me if there's any false way in me. So the edge is you shouldn't do this, you should do that, and, and God's going to be there. His presence is going to point at it when we do fall short, but do you know what it produces in your life? It's something that only disciples of Jesus have in the world, this confident humility, it's this strange mixture of two things that could, that our society sees as completely polar opposite. We find them together. We find them together in the person of Christ and then he bestows that upon us as we lean into the presence of God. What is and how do we lean into the presence of God? It's this very, compl- it's not complicated. Reading the Bible and talking to him. You know, sometimes we'll go through our our, our emerging leaders class, and and uh, you know, I get to have a one-on-one with everybody who goes through our emerging leaders class. This is kind of our discipleship, urban missionary training, is what we call it in the city, and and I'll encounter someone who's incredibly mature, and I'll ask them, "Well, how did you get this way?" And they'll say, "I I read my Bible and I prayed. I read my Bible and I prayed. I did Psalm one, essentially." And, and it's been a tough year for us. And, and these, we, we hope over the, over the course of these weeks to call us back to reading our Bibles and praying, to leaning into the presence of God, to seeking the face of God, to be honest if the face of God feels like this smothering presence that's gonna kill you that you wanna run away from. We wanna invite you into all of that. Uh, so is a church where we you don't have to be okay to be here in fact if if you are okay all the time it probably alludes to the fact that you're not wrestling uh, with the the very thing that's going to give you life with the word of god with wrestling similar to david there's there's a bunch of them we're going to see more of them over the course of these next weeks And, and and you might think after the course of this year and a half it's like what do you mean god's everywhere he's abandoned us just look at it he's gone But perhaps, and this is true of my life, whenever you feel God is most distant, that's actually when he's most hotly pursuing you. Would you entertain that fact? Would you open yourself up to the possibility that things are going really poorly in your life because God is trying to reach in and he's trying to bring you back to him? Maybe this is your big fish that you're getting put into like Jonah got put in. Maybe this is your sleeping bag that you got knit into like David felt. He wants to be with you. Will you hold his hand? Will you let God lead you from darkness into light? Because if you say yes, Jesus Christ will never let you go. Even death will just be that nice night's sleep, and he'll just wake you up on the other side to a new kingdom. Well, th- thank you for being with us today as we lean into God's presence. There's so much more to come. I'm really excited for it as, a, as we continue to lean into it. And, and in God and through his spirit, we will experience him more. We, we will see him in more fullness. And we will go out into the world changed because of it.